Hello and welcome to the 11th episode of the Rock Terrain podcast. Today is um, April the 15th, 2021. My name is Thomas and with me as always is Dennis. Hello there. Um, in today's episode, we are going to talk about lunar tectonics, so the field that I wrote my bachelor thesis on. Hey. But yeah, <laughs> finally. But before we will do that, um, I would say... Are there any news from your side? Yeah, actually, there is quite a bit of news from my side because uh, I've read a couple of interesting papers recently. But before I get into that, uh, yeah, I wrote the final axiom of my bachelor's degree to get today. So, yeah. <laughs> oh man, it's 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 really a cool feeling. That's it. That's it. I mean, of course, uh, this is only going to continue when I start my master's degree. That's just the nature of the beast. But for the moment, no more exams. And it still feels amazing. Just to know that one other box is checked. Yeah, absolutely. Just looking at the list of things you had to study for and the list of things you had to write exams about it's sometimes i think it's really mind-boggling to look back at all of that it's quite kind of unimaginable that you had to study all of that and that one memorized all of that i think yeah when when you started to study here in Münster when when you just started seeing all these axioms, which would, which you would have to write one day, one way or another, if you wanted to finish your degree, it was really overwhelming. Because, I don't know, at the start of uh, my studies, I, I couldn't even imagine learning all that stuff that was listed on the webpage where you have to uh, sign up for axioms and stuff like that. I mean, I didn't even understand like some of the <laughs> some of the yeah. topics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was actually actually one of the most frightening things. Yeah. And you read the title of an exam and you couldn't even figure out what could possibly be meant by the title of the yeah. subject. <laughs> and yeah, it's just it's quite an uplifting feeling. <laughs> Definitely, concrete. Yeah, so much for me. Uh, I'm feeling pretty free right now, which is kind of a weird feeling because <laughs> I've been studying a lot over the last few months. But what about you? What What's going on in your life? Uh, yeah, actually, currently, not so much. Um, I mean, I have a lot to do currently, but... I don't know, like nothing big news. The semester started again, so it's my second master semester. Had our first lecture today. I have now two projects in the Plantology Institute um, that I'm working on. So there's a lot of stuff to do, but not generally large news, I would say. Um, yeah. <laughs> today is the day where I'm like, nah. Nothing really to talk about here. Quick um, and simple. Yeah, very quick and simple today. But 
Um, as far as, oh, wait, there's actually one thing. Ingenuity, the master mm -hmm. or, um, or not the master, but the Mars helicopter, Mars drone. Um, yeah, so they actually wanted to launch, uh, started like last Sunday, somewhere around that. But then there was like a problem, technical problem, and now they're working on that. And there's like a script they have to update and not earlier as tomorrow. So April the 16th, they want to try launch it again. I don't think that there is a date yet, but they said at least um, at 18, April the 16th. Yeah. Not even on Mars, you're safe from updates. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't your Windows update? Yeah. Yeah, um, no, I, I yeah. Uh, actually caught that. I was already wondering when it was going to launch because, I mean, I, I, I got that they delayed it several times, but yeah, didn't know that they really had a fixed date in mind by now. Again. Maybe I don't. I don't know. Was it? Was there actually generally a fixed date? No, no. Wouldn't really no make sense either. Huh? Yeah, they're just trying to see when they can do it, and then yeah. it's probably just be like a quick update after that that they're gonna have a news, mm, yeah, um, news I session mean, or something like that. I mean, the stars have to align. Weather has to be perfect. Mm. I mean, you don't really want to launch the first helicopter on an another celestial body and have it crash immediately. <laughs> Honestly, that's interesting. I don't even know if the weather on Mars varies so strong from day to day that... I mean, in, in terms of dust storms or... Yeah, but like dust storms are like, you know, large events. That's not mm. like one day there's a dust storm that's like... That's something different. Mm, I wonder yeah. if there's like, if they have to see like, oh, is the wind good today? Or if the wind is like on a steady state? I don't even know that. The change will be very interesting. I'm going to look that up for, for the next episode, maybe. <laughs> Write it down before you forget it. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm just going to the Mars Veto forecast. Um, is there something else scientific um, you want to talk about? No, but uh, I kind of... <laughs> recognized that you were really wanted to talk about um or you were really hyped about some terrorist <laughs> paper right yeah indeed um <laughs> actually there are three pterosaur papers i know of dropped since the last time we recorded uh one of them concerning neck vertebrae of a special gigantic pterosaur group in terms of they were gigantic animals, uh, and two papers describing new genera. And I think I'm going to maybe talk a few sentences about one of those new genera, because um, one of those called Kung... Jesus. <laughs> Kunpengopterus. Kunpen... Kun Kunpengopterus. Kunpengopterus. It's an A. Is this, this a, like an Asia? An Asia name? Or? Uh, ja, da hast du mich jetzt wieder erwischt. Oh, ich habe keine Ahnung. 
Okay, wir reden einfach weiter. Ähm, ja, schneid das mal raus. Ja. A Conpengopterus is a pre pretty special pterosaur because, or maybe to give a very, very short introduction because, I mean, um, you need to understand a little bit about pterosaur hands before uh, if you want to compare your arms to pterosaur arms. Pterosaurs essentially have four fingers, or factually, they have four fingers. They lack the pinky. Um, the ring finger is the one uh, which the wing membrane is attached to. And then they have the three other fingers, the middle finger, the index finger, and the thumb, essentially, which they walked on. They walked on all fours on the ground. And what's usu usually pterosaur hands were reconstructed rather simple. But last year there was already a paper which pointed out that some certain pterosaurs had a different hand anatomy than others. And this new genus is pretty special because not only does it have weird hands but it has a pretty special adaptation because it seems to have an opposable thumb meaning that this pterosaur would have been able to grab things which is commonly associated with climbing animals <laughs> and that's that's just really cool because yeah you're really slowly starting to get the sense that these leathery winged, quote unquote leathery, eh, but these winged cousins of the dinosaurs are becoming more and more understood because slowly you get the feeling that, yeah, there was considerable ecological diversity in there. Yeah, and actually pretty cool diversity. I don't know. Do you, I, I like impossible funds because I have one. But <laughs> just in general, it's a cool adaptation. It's really useful if yeah. you're climbing or using tools or anything like that. Yeah. And Actually, uh, I saw the artwork from the paper before I saw that a new paper had dropped. And I was really confused because one, there were two individuals shown on this artwork, uh -huh. on this paleoart piece. Uh, unfortunately, I don't remember who it who it's from. It's but one of them was holding an insect in its hand, in its left hand, and I was, I was like, uh, yeah, no. And I was like, you know, I was about to uh. skip unt until <laughs> I I I saw that the there was a title of a paper about that over that. Yeah, and when you look at the individual, it seems. I haven't read the paper yet uh, because I had to study. <laughs> so I'm going to do that today, I think. But it's actually pretty cool looking. It looks a bit like one of those candy grabbers. <laughs> <laughs> they did it first. Pterosaurs did it first. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that's, that's a pretty cool topic. I'm glad you talked about that. 
And I'm honestly, I haven't seen the the images yet. Um, I think you have you sent me the paper. You sent me one paper, but I haven't looked mm. at it. But I will look at definitely after the podcast because now I'm really interested in how that looks like. Yeah. Maybe we will link the image in the um, on YouTube. Yeah, or maybe the paper. Or the paper, yeah, better. Okay. Um, anything else? Nope. I think one Terrasaur paper. I mean, I could talk about all three, uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, I think one should do it because yeah. this was the most outstanding one. Yeah. I cut it anyway. As always, I let you talk about your Terrasaurs and then in the end, I just cut it all out. <laughs> you, know, you, know, you know, what's maybe the coolest thing? They could have given you a thumbs up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. One pterosaur like this. <laughs> now we can move on. And now we can move on. Yeah. Now I'm confused. All right. Um, I think then we let's go into a small break and return with the main topic of today and Which today's is... topic: lunar tectonics. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of in a good mood right now. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Do you actually remember back when we <laughs> said in the first readings on planetology? Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> good. When it all started, when it all began. And I mean, actually, that was, I think, why we started to come along very quickly after we truly got to know each other was that you had a fascination for dinosaurs. Uh, but you wanted to go into planetary sciences because you were even more into that than paleontology. And with me, it at was, least at this point of time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ten um, years before, it would have looked better, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And with me, it was the exact other way around. Uh, I was interested in planetary sciences, but yeah, I want to get into uh, paleontology. And after, after these first readings and after our axiom on planetary sciences, uh, it feels like things really took off for you because through our professor, you learned about the moon and potential future points of interest about the moon. And I don't know, for me, you have been <laughs> the moon guy ever since. And I think you are for many of our friends <laughs> yeah that's true but i'm also working on mars and i said no the moon mars guy <laughs> no you'll you'll forever be the moon guy yeah and i honestly i can live with that that's actually <laughs> <laughs> moon is pretty cool yeah and you even wrote your bachelor thesis about something on the moon and i think from now on, you could <clears throat> elaborate. Yeah, uh, that's what I at least try to do. <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm not going to talk about the bachelor thesis itself today, but I'm going to talk about a topic um, which my bachelor thesis is about. And yeah, as first of all, as you said, um, it was a great opportunity that my professor gave me there. Um, 
he gave me this my own project basically and said okay yeah so if you want to do something there's a cool topic so if you're interested in that you're welcome to work on it and yeah i, I don't know from the first time i've read it just because i was so confused i was <laughs> directly sold <laughs> kind of you know the point where like the authors itself were like yeah eh, we don't know <laughs> yeah. at that point um it's pretty sold yeah yeah and that topic is um lunar tectonics now first of all what is tectonics now Tectonics, and in geoscience at least, is the study of the crust of a planet, so the outer shell of a planet, and its state and its deformation, the physical stresses within this um, outer layer of a planet, and all the movements in there. So on Earth, um, there would be, for example, the formation of mountains. There would be earthquakes and all that stuff that is part of the tectonics study. And what I have looked at, and many other people, is the tectonics on other planets and specifically the tectonic situation on the moon. And therefore I want to answer two questions. So first of all, what does it actually mean? So what kind of tectonics are existing on the moon? I mean, we know that there is no plate tectonics on the moon, so it probably doesn't have mountain ranges and anything like that. So what, what's happening there? So that's the first thing I want to address. And then a second thing I want to address is the question about when. Is it like long ago or is it still... I mean, the moon seems pretty dead, right? It seems, compared to Earth, pretty inactive. Yes, and that's it. Just, yeah. Goodbye, and, everyone. <laughs> Yeah, moon is inactive, but <laughs> no, um, the question is, is it actually? And is there maybe some activity going on that, yes, maybe more hidden from our eyes? And this is what I want to address today. But first of all, what kind of tectonics do exist on the moon? Then, as I said, most of tectonics on Earth are, um, well, because of plate tectonics, but on the moon we don't have that. And therefore we first have to understand how the moon formed. And I do this very briefly. We have a proto-earth um, and a large body around 3.54, 3.53 billion years ago crashed into the earth. And because of this crash, a lot of material was thrown out of earth. And this material now orbited earth and formed our moon. And this means that our moon at some point was pretty much completely molten, at least the outer layers. It had like a completely molten magma ocean. Magma ocean is like the word that is used in geology. It had a magma ocean. And after time, this ocean of course cooled and it solidified, it crystallized. And the first hard rocks on the moon formed. And this is now where it gets interesting. So first of all, what kind of tectonic activity can exist? We have compression, right? You have a material and you compress it together, like a block of concrete and you press on 
all sides together and try to smash it. You can have extension. You have well, block and pull it apart. And then there's something like transform, which I'm not gonna talk about today, but you can imagine like two blocks moving relatively to each other, like one to the right and one to the left side. But the important part or the important part for the moon is extension and compression. So extension, what kind of extension do we have on the moon? On the moon, we see graben. These are large structures that can be several thousand kilometers long and some kilometers wide. And they are all very old. They're around three, they're at least older than 3.6 billion years. And then after 3.6 billion years, we basically see no graben, no large graben anymore. And actually, this makes sense because 3.6 billion years ago, a very long time ago, the moon was still very hot. It started to solidify, it started to crystallize and the first crust um, started to form. But it was still extremely hot. So there was still a lot of movement of material and then extensional forces can exist. But once the moon started to cool down and cool down and cool down, then something else happened because cold object has less volume than when it's hot. So it's by cooling down, it shrinks. And by shrinking, it of course then experiences compressional forces. And around after 3.6 billion years ago, we say that the net extensional force of the moon transformed in a compressional state. The moon went from having a lot of extension to getting so cold and cold and cold that it started to be dominated by the compression of the cooling of the mm -hmm. moon. So that's why we have extensional forces that are older than 3.6 billion years. And then it was the time of the compression on the moon. And for compression, we basically have two kinds of features. There's maybe a third type, but I want to talk about the two types that are interesting now. The first are low bed sculpts. Now, therefore we have to understand a bit more about the moon. When we look at the moon, we see two different kinds of colors. There's like the large light gray areas, and then there are like these dark spots. Now, these dark spots are basalt. These are large impact basins, very, very old, that were then later filled by volcanic activity. So new hot material, new hot lava um, erupted and filled after time these large impact basins. So these are layers of basalt, a lot of layers of basalt. And then, and they are called Maria uh, because people first thought that this could be oceans and that's why they're called Maria. And then we have the light gray areas, the lunar highlands. Now they are made out of anorthosite. And for a very simplistic explanation, these are basically just one block. This is basically just one block of material. These basaltic maria, they are layered, like a lot of layered basalts. But this 
Yeah, light gray areas, this is just basically one rigid block of material. And in these highlands, low-bit scarps exist. Now, low-bit scarps are very, very simplistic tectonic structures. These are basically simple thrust folds. Um, to get maybe a an, an picture in your head, imagine you have a block of concrete or something like that. And then you push it on two sides, push it together. And of course, at some point it will crack. At some point, the, strong is, the force is so strong that it will crack. And there will be fractures, some linear fractures that will appear throughout the block. And then if you press now further, these fractures are weak points. And along these fractures, there can be a movement of this now splitting blocks. Right? On these fractures, now one block will apparently move on top of the another. You will press it together and together and together and the surface area is shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. Mm, yeah. You press it together. Yeah. All of that stuff has to go somewhere. Right. Uh, and it, it goes on top of the other. Because it's the easiest way. Yeah. Um, so the, the surface area that was before on top is shrinking, basically. And this is very simplistic um, kind of rust fault. And that's what low bit scars probably are. There's like one large fracture and rust fault that is located to some kilometers deep in the highlands. And due to compression, there's one part that moves on top of the other part. And they are basically scattered throughout the highlands. They were first noticed with the Apollo missions. So when we had the first, because they're very small, and so we had now with the Apollo missions, the first like more high quality images of the surface of the moon. And then these structures were found. And then we have one other structure, compression structure, and these are ridges. Now, <laughs> ridges are located within the Lunar Maria, and they are a bit more complex. And the whole structure itself is like a very difficult field where there's a lot of discussion. Um, but the important part is they are a bit more complex. They are not just simple thrust folds. There, actually, we don't even know how many thrust faults there are involved. There are some people that are saying there are like three or four thrust faults involved. This would be like very complex. But a very important part is following. As I said, these Maria are layered. And that means that you cannot just have a simple thrust faults where one block is moving above the nether as like in this one block scenario with the highlands. And the reason for that is actually very simple. Just imagine you put some papers on top of each other, like a stack of paper, and now you bend it, like you bend it so there's like in the middle a settle or something like that. Then of course, there will be a movement in between these papers, right? In these mm -hmm. individual sheets of papers, they will move in some sort relatively to each other. Yeah, And it's the same case here, like these layers, these connections between different layers are weak points. This is mm. not solidified in between these layers or like on a um, 
more weaker scale. And that means that these will move relatively to each other. And that's why in addition to a thrust fault, the material will bend, it will fold. And that's the case for ring carriages. So ring carriages do consist of a thrust fault and a bending and folding of material. And that's why they look a bit more complexer. They have like this broad arch and broad topographic linear rise. And then off top of them is like this small steep ridge located. Very difficult to explain, but as I said, it kind of look complex. And they do not occur randomly. They have some weird patterns that we can observe. So most of the basins have like a circular structure because they were old impact basins. And when we see these ring carriages, then they form concentric to the basin, like in large rings. And then there's some that are radial and some maybe some points are linear, like all in a northeast, uh, north-south direction, for example. So they're not scattered randomly throughout, but they seem to be orientated. And that's pretty interesting. And that's, I will talk about that in a second. So these are the two types of compressional forces on the moon. And now we have to ask ourselves, why do they form? Well, I've said we have compression, the moon is cooling down and due to the cooling of the interior, the moon is shrinking and due to the shrinking, we have compression. And compression due to the global cooling of the moon would be or would result in randomly distributed forces. There would be like no orientations and patterns visible. It just would be like everything is compressed everywhere. It would just result in randomly distributed structures. And that's what we see with low-base scarves, right? They're like everywhere and they seem to be randomly at least. So that seemed to be the case. But as I said, ring carriages, no, they follow patterns. So there has to be something else involved. It's not just global compression. There seemed to be another factor. And this is subsidence. These Mare basalts are heavy. Basalt is a very heavy rock. It's very dense, it's very heavy, and it's more heavier than the highlands, or the unnoticed, the rock of these light grayish areas. And this means that all the basalt is pushed down to the middle of the moon due to gravity, stronger than the light material around it. It's pushed to the center. Pulled. Very strongly. Pulled. Yeah, you can say pulled, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> I wanted yeah. to say push it because maybe easier to understand that. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I get it, but yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's pulled um, to the center. Yeah, it's much nicer to say that pulled. It's pulled to the center, and well, that results in all the material is like additionally compressed because it all tries to move to the center of the moon, and. This is called subsidence. And this is why we probably see these concentric and radial ring curvatures. 
like if if there's modeling of how the forces would react mm. in such a scenario then it says us yeah there should be like different throughout these you know circular um circular basins basically they're like areas where there's contraction and then there are areas where there's extension like at the edges far outside and this is exactly what we see they're like these graben that are like far outside because if you well push some material into the center then of course somewhere else material has to be taken away and so we have this graben on the outside and then we have in the center this concentric wrinkle ridges i hope it's an understandable image you yeah know, i've looked at these things so often i just yeah know how they look like yeah so maybe let me try to summarize mm -hmm. just to have a yeah. look whether it worked yeah so basically these structures are concentric and they are concentric simply for the reason that the basalt is pulled towards the center of the moon because of gravity this the way the stresses work when this happens is that concentric uh, fractures form. Yeah, and of course, at the edges, the material is basically pulled towards the center, pulled towards the bottom of the mare, and therefore you have extensional features on the edges of the mare. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Sorry. So it's it's Good. not randomly orientated and... There's the explanation for that. Correct. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> See, um, I could be a planetary scientist <laughs> after someone explained it to me. <clears throat> yeah, but that's always <laughs> the case. You need someone to explain to you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, but as I said, there are also some other patterns that's much more complex. There are probably many factors involved, as always. But this is like the main factor that we think um, is involved. However, if we look at the timing, we do have some evidence that this happened only, yeah, around 3.5, 3.58 billion years ago. Hmm. And after that, it seems to be the case that global contraction was much more dominant. Um, uh, 3.55. I hope I said it, but yeah, 3.55. And after 3.55 billion years, it seems to be that global contraction was much more dominant and subsidence played a smaller role. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult to say. And I know that there's some newer studies who try to see how much subsidence there could be maybe still even today. Um, but like the, the, the one paper that basically everyone is referring to, um, shows at least some strong evidence that seems to be after 3.5 billion years, um, global contraction was much more dominant and I will not go into why, because that's very difficult. Um, and it would like be too much for the episode today, but that's our case. So these structures are probably very old, right? They're probably some 3 billion years old. And it's also what some studies have shown. 
they try to see the the or they try to get the ages of these ring curvatures and they have also shown that at least most of these structures seem to be um, ordered at 3 billion years however there are some areas where this does not seem to be the case um which again shows how complex this topic is and which again also shows that or in this scenario could also be two different methods that were used and it's an active field and that's also the field that i was working on but in general these are or these are thought to be very ancient structures very early on in the history of the moon but they formed obvious or they formed like it seems for a pretty long time um there is also evidence that some of these ring curvatures formed some 1.2 billion years ago and i know that sounds pretty old especially for paleontologists like you <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, that, that was not meant as a, a soul <laughs> uh, i mean on earth like most of the things we talk about um, are pretty young, you know, like some, mm. I mean, young and gross. I mean, they're like 800 million years, 500 million yeah. years. And it's actually pretty old. But yeah. on the moon, like 1.2 billion years is actually quite young. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's two completely different things because yeah. Earth is a way more dynamic place. Tectonics work way more intensely on Earth, Earth's surface yeah. or reef. Uh, tectonics on earth reform earth's surface more continuously than on the moon exactly there's of course a difference yeah but that's the case where we stand it like for a pretty long period of time these structures these ring creatures seem to be pretty old um some three billion years and some individual of them maybe even one billion year old and they form probably mainly due to subsidence However, that's like the basis that I wanted to have. Like, what is lunar tectonics? What do we see there? And why did it form in the first place? And now to the question again, is the moon actually so inactive as we think? I mean, if we look at the moon, it seems so because it looks the same every day. And it probably looks the same since many, many years. There's no real change. There's no atmosphere or an hydrosphere like oceans and rain and weather that reworks the surface. There are no plate tectonics, so there's not the formation of new material and on the other side, the um, elimination of material. There's not a formation of large um, mountains there's no active volcanism anymore, at least as far as we're concerned. So is the moon basically inactive? Well, we kind of talked about the topic in one, epi uh, in one episode before, and that's the episode about the Rocky Archive. So Archive, I think episode two was that, right? Yes, indeed. Yeah. Um, but we already talked a bit about that, and we already kind of hinted that that's maybe not the case of course the moon is not as active as earth today that's very easy to say and it's probably also not as active as for example mars or venus 
but there is some sort of activeness and if this is a tectonic activity that's what i'm trying to explain now the first hint of a maybe still active moon we had with the apollo missions now i've told you that they had like the first images of these low bed scarps and the interesting thing is these low bed scarps on these images look crisp you know like sharp edges crisp mm. morphology very easy to see very dominant and that's interesting mm. because there is an erosion on the moon it's very low key and not comparable to earth but there is to get some number we say that there's like movement of material of around three plus minus two centimeters per million years which means <laughs> if you have like a bucket that is one meter deep and you like bury it halfway to the ground then it will be filled after well 50 million years oh man it's that's just ludicrous but it occurs that's the key point exactly it occurs and it occurs actually on so slow rate that you can kind of compare the appearances of different structures to get like an idea of relative ages mm. I mean, and because yeah i mean main factors involved are solar radiation yeah what else something uh, micrometeorites i oh, am yeah, right yeah solar radiation micrometeorites yeah that stuff um and one additional factor um, which i will get to in a sec but we saw or not we but the scientists back then saw that these structures looked very crisp and so they asked themselves well how old can they be and then the first calculations were done if we say that the moon was completely molten at a completely molten magma ocean before how would the forces be today would this still be possible and the first calculations have shown yes indeed to a certain degree like very shallow activity very surface activity could actually still exist this was very early studies very early calculations but it seemed to give a first hint that it could be still possible and then the apollo mission said something else four seismometers were placed on the surface of the moon by the apollo missions so seismometer um, is well recording the movement of the earth basically of the surface and it then records earthquakes here on earth and on the moon we call them moonquakes <laughs> i've not real, known that before <laughs> as, real, before I real creative yeah <laughs> and on mars mars quakes yeah <laughs> wow. um anyway quality content yeah <laughs> we placed four of them on the moon and well we have recorded moonquakes hmm. which is of course very interesting can you say in how far they're comp comparable to earthquakes so in yeah. terms of strength intensity uh, yeah yeah i can i can um so I, I then let's start with that um they have like a magnitude of like the largest magnitude was slightly above 
5 on the Richter scalar. Um, so like an, I mean, it's not like a very weak earthquake here, but it's like also not very strong. You know what I mean? Mm, but you would notice it. Yeah, definitely. You would definitely notice it. Yeah. Um, and then, but it's very difficult to say, um, moonquakes react a bit differently than on earth mm. um, than earthquakes. Yeah. And then the next question is, why are the moonquakes? You know, could it be impacts? You know, like it's maybe just meteorites crashed onto the moon surface and we recorded that. And you can actually, or we can actually um, compare this then to like real impacts and see if this is an impact or not. So this was a lot of work was involved. But in the end, we are pretty sure that recorded 28 surface near moonquakes. There were also some recorded very deep down within the moon due to completely different reasons, um, which may be interested, interesting for a later time. But for now, 28 of them occur very near to the surface. And these other ones, well, that probably seem to be related to lunar tectonics. Some movement in the crust and movement in the crust is by per definition <laughs> um, the study of tectonics. So we had now two ideas, two hints um, for more recent activity. We had these images of these very sharp structures and now we also had the recordings of moonquakes. For and so there also it was tried to like localize these moonquakes to see where exactly they happened. And this also seemed to correlate with some low base scarps. Hmm. So actually very, very early on, people had the idea that there might be maybe an activity ongoing. But the idea of a recent activity actually really started to, um, well, take speed in the last 10 years. Then, and basically with the launch of the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter in the year 2011, because the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter allowed now on global coverage of images with a resolution of up to 0.5 meters per pixel. So every pixel displays half a meter. And this well is an incredible high resolution and much better than anything else we had before. And with that we were able to see that these low bit scarps are actually everywhere. There are many of them. <laughs> like incredible many of them and they're scattered all around the moon yeah that in and of itself is pretty amazing yeah and they're very small so they're probably even more than we know of now um there are maps of them and um you know they have like mapped over five thousand of these structures <laughs> 
Uh, yeah. Nevertheless. With these images, we also found some other evidence for a possible ongoing activity. So again, we had, they had these sharp morphologies. Like that's always a good, good first uh, hit. Then we looked at the crater population. So how many craters are on these surfaces? Um, Ideas, an old surface has of course many craters because it's very old and a young surface just didn't have enough time for many craters to um, form, to meteorites hitting the surface. And that's why younger structures have less craters than older structures. And when looking at that, it also seemed that at these low weight scarps, crater populations were not as dense. And the idea was, well, if there's like a movement, then there's of course a moonquake, and a moonquake could destroy some of the smaller craters. Then we saw boulder fields. These are areas where a lot of large boulders are exposed, some several meters to tens of meters in size. And well, the question is, how did they get there? <laughs> where did they come from? They can, boulders can be found everywhere on the moon, uh, mostly due to impacts, because impacts, of course, throw material out. But now we see them at these low-weight scarves. And later, we find them also on some ring curvatures. So the question is, well, how do they get there? And the idea is, if there's movement, like shaking due to a moonquake, then all this dusty material on the surface of the moon, which is called regolith, very fine-grained material, will, well, move down in fractures, you know what I mean? Like the ground is moving and all this fine material is moving, moving down through fractures. Like if you have a glass full of cornflakes, and there are like some broken cornflakes and some from back of cornflakes. And when you open it the first time, you will see that all the small stuff is at the bottom and all mm -hmm. the big stuff is on top because the smaller stuff is moving through the small fractures in between. Mm, so basically the small stuff is sinking below. Yeah. It's basically, yeah. Yeah, I, I think the cereal example is, is a good one. If you have a cereal consisting of differently sized uh, grains, if you shake it, what will happen is that slowly but surely the small stuff will sink to the bottom. That's exactly what's going on here. So it would basically... That's pretty, that's pretty interesting because, I mean, just getting to the conclusion that this could be what's going on is uh, <laughs> pretty, pretty interesting. Yeah, um, that's also why it, um, I mean, it's still very paper, uh, there are many papers coming out right now to talk about these, uh, these things. Mm. Um, and it's still debated because we can see this boulder fields everywhere on the moon, you know, mm. and this does not necessarily mean that they have to be occurring everywhere because of the same reason. Um, but yeah, so there's, we still have to look into that if that's really, really the case. But this high abundance of these 
border fields. At Lobets Gov's Rinkerages is at least a very good idea what could be going on. I mean, and you I, you showed yeah. me pictures of them. Yeah. And for the listeners, they really they they look out of place. They really yeah. look out of place because on satellite images you can really see these big boulders just just standing there. And it just especially if you know a bit more about geology uh, and the way sediment is transported and knowing about the fact that the moon is rather inactive because i mean there are such occurrences on earth where you have big boulders laying around in uh, an area otherwise devoid of other sediment but this usually occurs when wind just blows away small particles and this is not what could be going on on earth uh on the moon excuse me so the first time i saw that i couldn't i i i, I couldn't really find any explanation how this could have come about i mean i was i'm, I'm not familiar with uh, planetary sciences and, and of course we're just students so we don't claim to know enough to explain such things but it was just from the basic geologic understanding we got during the bachelor's degree i, I <laughs> couldn't really wrap my head around it yeah i know what you mean the first time i saw them i haven't even like really recognized them it's just oh yeah they were there and then mm. at some point, I was like, wait, why? Why are they there? Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah they really look out of place. And that's the idea behind it. Um, but some people say, you know, that there could be also the movement does not necessarily have to do because of their like tectonic activity. Maybe an impact, you know, could have made that. Mm. Um, so there are some other ideas how that could form. But at least I think of what I've seen and so on. The high abundance is pretty striking, you know. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I remember that as well. Um, and yeah, how could this help us get an idea of the timing? Well, as I've said, there is some um, erosion on the moon, on the surface. And now we do something very similar we try to think how long could these boulders survive on the surface till they are broken apart. How fresh are these boulders, you could say. And it turned out that, well, these boulder fields could actually hint that these boulders should have been excavated within the last 100 million years. And if we now say they were you know, um, they form because of a movement, because of a moonquake, and therefore there would be an evidence for tectonic activity, then that would be also an evidence for tectonic activity within the last 100 million years. So this was like the idea with the boulder fields. Mm. And then something else was found. Um, from I think the first time this was found was some waters at all in 2012 
And what they found was small crumb. Now these crumb are like some meters wide. They can be like even smaller than a meter wide. Some of them are some 10 meters wide and they have lengths of around some meters to some several of meters to some hundred meters. Um, so they're still very small comparing to all the other structures on the moon that is pretty, pretty small, very, very small. <clears throat> and I've told you now before that extension was not a thing after 3.6 billion years. The yes. question is, am I lying to you? <laughs> Course of are. course, yeah, always. <laughs> not in this case. <laughs> These crumbs were only found near, or at the beginning, only found near low bed scarps. Nowhere else, just there, only there. Directly in the back of these structures. And so the question was why? We don't have extensional forces on the moon. So they have to be very regional. They have to be like small regional forces that seem to be extensional in some sort. And what is it a region? Well, these lobate scarps. So then the idea was, well, if you push material on top of each other, you know, um, a shortening of the surface, you also have to take material from somewhere, right? Yes, indeed. And then to the flexural bending and all that that's happening in the back of these scarps, these graben could have formed. And that was incredibly interesting. And then, well, as I said, these graben are very small. And also they're very crisp looking, extremely sharp edges. So same, same question, well, how old are they? Um, now I've told you that if you would bury an, um, like a barrel that is one meter deep into the surface, it mm. would take like 50 million years to be filled up. And some of these graben are less than one meter deep. So they should have formed at least within the last 50 million years. And if we now say that they actually formed because of the movement of this underlying crust fault, then of course they also evidence for this tectonic activity. And therefore like more and more stuff seem to um, be found that says, well, there could be a tectonic activity within the last 50 to 100 million years. Now this of course still seems pretty old but on the moon, that's recent. Yeah, that's actually so recent that you basically gonna say, yeah, then it's probably still happening. Like all of these papers end with, yeah, probably today also because fifty million years. Why would they stop now? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, just look at the scale. If it's been going on for billions of years, it would it would seem pretty unlikely that it that we are just existing existing in this perfect little time frame. Yeah where it just recently stopped. Yeah, exactly. So that's it. We have the evidence. Now we can say, okay, global contraction seems to still form these, um, these structures finished. 
But of course, as always, it's not that easy. <laughs> Tectonics is a very difficult field because there are many, many reasons involved. It's not as simple as always to say like, okay, that's the reason, let's go. There are so many factors involved just because nature is very complex in many, many scenarios at least. And in this case, we found something strange. These Lobet scarps are scattered all around, you know, the moon. And I've told you before, global contraction, you know, results in randomly orientated structures. And that seemed to be the case. But now, since we have found so many of them and we mapped them, we see that that's not the case. They are not distributed randomly. They are patterns. So what does this mean? Well. We know that global contraction, cooling of the moon would result in randomly orientated patterns. And that's not the case. So there has to be an additional factor involved. But what could that be? Now in study from 2019, 2020, also from Waters et al, tried to look at that. And what they've done is they looked at the data from the Apollo missions on the well, moonquake data. And they first of all try to relocalize, relocalize these um, possible moonquakes to get like a higher resolution. But that's not the important part. The important part is that they try to look at the, um, the timing of these moonquakes. Um, so when did these moonquakes happen, you know? And over the years, so these, um, um, these seismometers were active between 1971 and 1977, something like that. And now they wanted to see when the moonquakes happened, already like randomly or whether some patterns visible. And actually, there were some patterns visible. So, as you may know, the orbit of the moon is not perfectly circular it is evolving over time. It's an ellipse and it's evolving over time. And because it's an ellipse, there is a part where the moon is very close to the earth and a part where the moon is very far away from the earth. If the moon is very close to the earth, we call it a perigee. And when it's very far away from the earth, we call it an apogee. Um, there's like a distance between some 40 to 50,000 kilometers range. And we see that from these 28 moonquakes, 18 of them happened when the moon was pretty far away, so near the apogee. And that's interesting because that's not randomly distributed, that seemed to be like a pattern. And if we do models, we see that the forces, the tidal forces on the moon, so the tidal forces between Earth and moon, are the strongest when the moon is far away from the Earth and then again pulled closer. That is where the tidal forces are the strongest. Okay, so there seem to be moonquakes that are pretty common when the moon is far away. Hmm. 
Now let's look at the patterns that um, and possible influence by tidal forces would result in. And they fit pretty good. There are still some parts where there's like, yeah, some does not fit as good as some others, but overall the patterns fit. It's too much to neglect it. Yeah, definitely. So the idea is, could there be additional factors like, okay, the overall force is of course global compression, the moon is cooling down and everything is pulled together. But the question that this paper asked is, may a tidal force as an additional factor? And it seemed to be, yes, from the data that we have now, yes. Um, and yeah, it seems to, that we get closer now to an idea what a today's, uh, what today's stress field of the moon looks like. And we are not yet very close to like the true stress field, just because it's so difficult. It's so complex. We now we have tidal forces and compressional forces due to the cooling, but there are of course many other factors involved, you know, like the moon, for example, is slowly um, moving away from the earth very slowly, but steadily it gets farther and farther away off to the earth. And this also influences an possible stress field. And then we have an possible influence of the sun, the tidal forces <laughs> that could be also an influence. Then we have some regional stresses that could influence. So there are many other factors probably involved. And now with that, I want kind of get a bit to that, well, the topic that I've worked on. Um, I will not explain exactly what I've done because this would take longer. But I looked at Rinkerichers within one of these Maria and I tried to get an idea when they formed. And what I've found is a wide range of these Rinkerichers, like these structures that were actually thought to be very ancient, seem to have formed, yes, very long ago, but also very recently. The same evidence that we found on these low bed scarps, so these graben and boulder fields and all that stuff, I can also see that with Rinkerichers. And other people have found that too during the last one or two years, more and more paper come out that looked at other areas on the moon and they have found exactly the same. These Rinkerichers seem all to be active. And this is again, a whole nother topic to itself because why? Global contraction, probably, but what else? What additional factors are involved? Well, maybe tidal forces again, yes. But also maybe other forces like subsidence. We don't really know what the influence of subsidence today is. Maybe there is some influence. We don't know. Maybe some weird regional stuff. Maybe some stresses that are very deep, um, located very deep in the moon. Some people say that there are some, that the moon is still not in an, um, what do you call it? In Gleichgewicht. Huh, German word of the day. German word of the day. Equilibrium. Equilibrium, right. That's the word I was searching for. German word of the day. Yeah. Gleichgewicht. The equilibrium. 
Um, some people say that the moon is still not in equilibrium on a stress level and they're still in the inner, very deep in the moon, there's still forces that try to get the moon into an equilibrium. And maybe these stresses have an influence too. The point is, we don't know. We have a good idea, or we have now many evidence that the moon is still tectonically active. We also have some evidence why it is tectonically active. But there seem to be so much more factors involved. And that means that there's still a field where a lot of work has to be done. And probably we're not nowhere close to a real answer that is very close in our future. It feels like one of those cases where right now people are at the point where they start to notice that, yeah, an old view has been wrong. It's yeah. the, this, this thought many people have that the moon is just this completely uh, dead object, that it's just this inactive celestial celestial body out there circling the earth ever so gently it's it just doesn't fit yeah and you know that's like one of these cases where more and more stuff is found that we just haven't known before like we find something new that is kind of weird and mm. then this lets us to a complete another topic you know something <laughs> completely else where we are like oh now now we understand that yeah. And then something else is found that seems to be weird. It's like an ongoing process of finding new and new and new and new stuff. I mean, especially this topic with the tidal forces, it's... I mean, once again, I'm not in that field, but wouldn't you expect these tidal forces to have some sort of effect anyway? So uh, I, I'm, I'm just curious. Uh, I would have thought that this would have been thought of earlier. I mean, y yes and no. Um, we know that that's a case, for example, for the moons of Jupiter and Saturn, just mm. because Jupiter and Saturn are so massive. The moons of Jupiter and Saturn are basically squeezed. They're tortured by the gravity. They're tortured so strongly that there is still active volcanism on these moons. <laughs> Not because of the interior heat, but because they are stretched so strongly. But in the case of the Earth and the Moon, you know, the Moon, the Earth is not the largest object. And the Moon mm. is actually pretty large too, compared to Earth. So that there are some tidal forces, of course. I mean, we have tidal waves on Earth. Um, but there seem to be no, to that point, we haven't found any correlation, you know. Mm. I think it was generally thought it's just not strong enough. I'm mm. pretty sure that wasn't people's mind before, pretty sure, but it just seemed not strong enough and there was no evidence to suggest it, you know. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I didn't want to sound arrogant or anything. No, like no, at all. Because... It's, it's a very legit question. I mean, it's yeah. a very legit question. It's a, I was just wondering, uh, because I don't know, it's it's these tidal forces, it's something, again, from our perspective, this is something people have started working on in recent decades then, and 
therefore it's it's just it feels so given to us that yeah of course there's tidal forces but then again we just started to learn about that stuff a few years back from our yeah. personal perspective so yeah but honestly it's it's really interesting and it's i just love these cases where yeah we start to see that maybe it's more complicated than we thought before and in this case, it's nice to see that this gray, seemingly boring neighbor isn't so boring after all. Yeah, and that's very interesting for our future because we will go to the moon again. Um, I mean, if it's now 2024 or 2026 or 2028, I don't know, but we will go there again at some point. And then we have to see, well, first of all, what do we want to do what science we want to do and well having new seismometers and new up-to-date seismometers maybe even you know some radar some you know some um yeah radar observatory or something like that radar radar yeah that's why <laughs> i was confused <laughs> yeah. uh, radar um some radar observatories to get an idea of the subsurface structures of these things. Um, this are what we have to think of now. And I think we have good evidence that supports that we need more data. And also on a completely another level, um, a risk evaluation. Mm, because yeah. up to that point, yeah, yeah, yeah. we probably wouldn't have bothered just to land <laughs> I mean, we have landed very close, Apollo 17 has landed very close to a low bit scout. But now that we know that there could be moonquakes up to five, uh, uh, up to five at the Richter Scala, that means that maybe we should get at least in some sort of safe distance with our stuff. Yeah, I mean, the Apollo missions, they, they weren't there for long, so the chances to encounter one of these quakes is rather slim. Uh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean they were active like in six years these uh, seismometers were active Yeah. and during this time you know that's first of all very limited period of data yeah. um, but secondly we during this time the strongest moonquake was 5.5 or 5.3 oh yeah, yeah this yeah, of course okay. doesn't mean that the strongest moonquakes are the sizes um Maybe we were lucky and we have measured like the strongest moon quake in the last millions of years. Yeah. Yeah. You shouldn't you know expect I mean. that. Yeah. You exactly. Should, <laughs> you, you, you would expect that what hits you is mostly something average, especially, I mean, if you measure over six years, that's still not considerable, but what you encounter yeah. should be more average. It's just more likely that it was an average quake. Okay, because I didn't, uh, yeah, but essentially what I meant was the Apollo missions were there for a very short time. So yeah. they did, even if they would have known about that to that degree, to that extent we do today, they probably wouldn't have to worry about that that much. Yeah. I mean, especially if you're trying to, talking about a colony, to put down some uh, fixed 
structure with a fundament or something like that then you'll have to worry about structural yeah. integrity and then it becomes really relevant yeah exactly yeah and also tectonics is a field where we can learn a lot you know earthquakes from earthquakes you can learn from the interior structure of the earth you know like mm. what minerals are deep down on the surface uh, deep down beneath the surface we can learn from that through earthquakes yeah yeah and on the moon with like very new nice seismometers we can learn maybe even a lot about the interior of the moon that we have not known to that point and so i think that's a field where there is just more science needed mm. we are very limited with our data we have to i mean you know like in many sciences, of course, but it's like looking for data everywhere, <laughs> you know, yeah. just trying to pull out everything that we have just yeah. to see if maybe there's one thing that could have led, uh, led to an answer <laughs> that we haven't thought about before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's. I mean, I keep saying that, but it's amazing what what. Uh, people in planetary sciences do work with i mean you guys are mostly working from satellite data yeah a broad array of satellite data but uh, i feel like a broken record but yeah ground crews uh, people working on the moon that's really what you would need to do really thorough geology it's I mean, just from the very limited experience we had and from what everybody has shown us during our bachelor's degree, you, geology on Earth is, is, is almost unimaginable without people working in the field. And I'm yeah. really looking forward to when maybe in our lifetime people work up there for more extensive periods of time. Yeah, I mean, that's something that I dreamed for a very long time, just to at least experience somebody landing yeah. on the moon and on Mars. And yeah, so let's see, hopefully that will happen during the next years. Hopefully. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so first of all, thank you that I was able to talk about this today. You're welcome, I guess. I mean, I honestly, it's, uh, it's, it's, for me, it's the same as it was for you with the Balve episodes mm -hmm. uh, that, you know, I've been hearing about your project for a long time and it's just, now it's this putting everything together and uh, yeah you had me convinced that the moon is actually pretty interesting and still a kind of dynamic place before. Uh, and I hope that the listeners do see the moon differently now as well when they look up at the night sky. So. That's something that I always try to engage, like people are showing that the moon is not so boring as, as, as it seems. <laughs> All right. Anything to add? Anything you would still like to say? 
Nah. <laughs> I think I've talked long enough. <laughs> All right. So, um, yeah, once again, we haven't fixed on next topic so far. Uh, so no announcements for next time. Yeah. And with that, I wish you a very nice day or evening. <laughs> and bye. Bye, guys. Thanks for listening to the Rocket Terrain podcast. If you enjoyed listening to us, please consider subscribing on your favorite podcast platform. Everything addressed in this podcast reflects our own opinion. You can contact us at 4.5gaindemaking at gmail.com. That is 4.5gaindemaking at gmail.com. All music used is from Kevin McLeod and was downloaded from filmmusic.io under the Creative Commons license. That is heavy interlude for intro and outro and home base groove for intermission. Do you, do you actually still need me? <laughs> or I think I can leave, can't I? <laughs> Boring. Good.